following lecture was produced by the Gnostic Academy of Chicago, a nonprofit organization, and is one of many available for podcast, download, and transcription. You can visit chicagonosis.org to find courses, articles, scriptures, commentaries, and other valuable resources that address a wide variety of spiritual subjects, interests, and needs. Through the generous support of listeners like you, the Gnostic Academy of Chicago has produced online courses, lectures, and articles freely available worldwide. If you have benefited from this knowledge, help humanity through making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. If you are interested in attending the Gnostic Academy of Chicago in person, you may view our online class schedule and freely register at meetup.com slash chicagonosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy. We're continuing our course on the science of dreams, the experiential knowledge of awakening consciousness. We talked previously about some common ideas surrounding what people have called astral projection, out-of-body experiences, lucid dreams, awakening, near-death experiences. And we are going to dive very deeply into many practices so that we can augment our perception. Our consciousness has the capacity, when trained, to be awake, even when the physical body is asleep. So that instead of dreaming during the eight hours we go to bed, we are in an intensified state of awareness. We don't enter in a type of amnesia unconsciousness, sleep, dullness, but learn to instead verify what religions have called heaven. And when one has that experience for oneself, one knows. It's not a matter of belief, of thinking a tradition or institution is true or not. It's rather about testing these realities for ourselves. And when we verify what these states are like from experience, we have what is called genuine faith, real knowledge, real understanding. But what are dreams and visions specifically? In psychology, Sigmund Freud believed that dreams are the doorway to the unconscious. And that by looking at our dreams, we can understand ourselves. He talked about what is known as manifest and latent content within dreams. The manifest content of a dream is its narrative. We can all think of a dream we had in which there was a form of logic, a storyline, 
a progression of scenes, dramas, comedies, tragedies within our own consciousness. But the latent content of a dream has to do with its meaning. And this is something that has deeply interested many people, psychologists. The latent content of a dream, according to Freud, could signify how that dream represents something physical. For example, we can have a dream of being assaulted by an animal. We're filled with fear, terror, resentment, agony. And if we carefully examine our life, we can find that these psychological states that we find in dreams reflect something that is going on in our personal life. Perhaps we have a relationship with someone in which we feel that fear, like we're being hunted, persecuted, shamed. And therefore, the animal in the dream can represent how we react to a particular person in our physical existence. Or perhaps someone has a dream of a serpent being bitten and attacked by a snake. And obviously that symbol is very prominent within many religions for a good reason. Because the language of different religious traditions and mythologies is oniric. It is dreamlike. It is from the world of dreams. And Carl Jung emphasized how the symbols of dreams are the foundation of all religion. Because all religious traditions teach symbols, allegories, parables, stories, which are processed and have been manifested through dreams, through that language, that type of logic. And Having a dream about a serpent obviously can be something about temptation in one's physical life, as we are very familiar with the Genesiatic story of the Bible. Now, other people have posited different ideas about dreams. John Hobson basically described through neuroscience that dreams are a form of proto-consciousness. They are a virtual reality, according to this theory, that help us to navigate the problems of daily life. Some have posited different theories, different ideas, like the threat simulation theory. People have argued that dreams are ingrained in our biology from an evolutionary perspective, according to some, in that Dreams were developed within the consciousness of people, growing humanity, evolving humanity, in which people were trained to confront their fears in dreams. That's one possibility described by scientists. There's other theories too, expectation fulfillment theory, basically referring to how dreams release built-up tension. Someone can experience an emotion in a dream that's a form of release because 
those desires in daily life can be repressed. This is very well known within psychoanalysis and Freudian psychology. This also explains, according to some scientists, how when those types of dreams are fulfilled, they're forgotten because the energy related to that emotion is released. That's one perspective. There are many theories about dreams, many beliefs, and they all offer some type of a perspective in relation to why this occurs. In our Gnostic tradition, we have very different approaches to the study of dreams, not just merely limited to a biological component or study of the brain, such as NRREM sleep, non-rapid eye movement, or REM sleep, in which we dream. Those are valuable in their level, but they have a very limited utility. Merely looking at the biology of a person when approaching dreams often delimits or cuts off any type of mystical, experiential, divine component. Now, Carl Jung was very interesting because he risked his reputation by declaring the spirituality of dreams, often to the denigration of his colleagues. So much of his knowledge that he taught was often very ciphered because the type of wisdom he was expressing about how to experience dreams and how to understand them is often very much misunderstood or condemned. Now, what's interesting about Carl Jung's theories about dreams is that he talked about what's known as an, a collective unconscious. He believed that humanity inherits through lineages, biology, ancestry, different religious symbols. And that would explain, according to this idea, why different religions across the world, different cultures, shared the same symbols, or what he called archetypes. Archetypes are basically parables. They are codes. They are an intuitive, spiritual, and divine grammar. A symbol can carry multiple dimensions and levels of meaning, which is why dreams are so powerful because they don't just merely communicate on the level of a type of logical analysis of our common, current, everyday intellect, but instead they reveal a type of logic that is beyond our current level of cognition. It's something that has to be developed and practiced with in order to deepen, in order to be worked with and effective. Now, Carl Jung and Freud had very different opinions about dreams. They came into many conflicts. And it would seem that the collective unconsciousness of Carl Jung would contradict Freud's interpretation that dreams are merely just a personal expression of your own daily life. So there is that apparent contradiction between theories, according to scientists. Now what's interesting is that Despite this difference, 
they're both revealing different aspects of a very nuanced problem. Dreams are often a reflection of our daily life, our habits, our actions, our drives, our impulses, desires. But also, according to Jung, there is something spiritual that can be experienced within that state. But it does not mean that our desires, conditions of mind, mental projections, fears, anxieties, worries that manifest in dreams are somehow sacred. In fact, there's a duality within our perception that we study very deeply in this tradition because there is a conditioned self, pride, fear, anger, lust, envy, jealousy, hatred. And then there is a part of us that is not conditioned by any element of that nature. It is spontaneous joy, freedom from pain, compassion. We call that the soul, or in our tradition, consciousness, the essence of a person, their true nature. It is this essence that we seek to develop because the essence the soul, which right now is in a very undeveloped, latent state, can be awakened and can be free of all types of distractions of mind, paranoia, hatred, wrath, vanity, defects. It is that part of us that is not conditioned, that has the capacity, as we said previously, to communicate with divinity our own inner truth, reality, what religions have called God in their original essence. But the problem is that our consciousness is very much trapped and limited. So, often for most people, our dreams tend to be just a personal reflection of our daily life. We feel fear, we're worried about our jobs, we're insecure, we're proud, we're hateful, whatever it may be, whatever our particular idiosyncrasy or psychological crutch or limp, that manifests within dreams. But also, Jung is pointing out there's something more here that is possible for individuals to experience and to understand and to not only initiate, but also to sustain and to perfect at will. So we make a very clear distinction in our studies between dreams and visions. And this is where you find that distinction between Carl Jung and Freud in relation to whether dreams are collective or whether they're personal. Dreams are merely projections of our own mind. Think of your experience like a film projector in which reality is a screen Oftentimes, rather than looking at what's there, we're always projecting ourself onto reality. This not only occurs within eight hours when we go to bed at night, but also even physically while we're awake. You ever have a conversation with someone where they're talking and you're thinking more about what to say next? We don't even hear what they're saying. It's because we're projecting our mind, our desires, onto the impression of this person who's talking with us. That's a dream. 
There are many types of dreams. We dream all the time, not only when we physically go to bed. We're dreaming in our waking life by distractions and afflictions of mind. And we're going to go very deep into this very nuanced problem, how we dream all the time. But a vision is different. That's when the projector stops projecting. When you're physically at rest, your consciousness is active, but the mind is perfectly still in a state of calm, peace. Then, instead of churning with affliction, in the stillness and perfect quietude of being, then images from our internal worlds emerge. They reflect within our consciousness and that we live those dramas within the internal worlds. We can experience astral projections. We experience dream yoga, lucid dreaming. We're awake in that state. And then you can see what's actually there. And a vision often includes a type of symbol. It's a drama that's living in which you are both a participant and a witness. And those dreams have a very allegorical character. They're very sacred. And they teach something practical about how to live our daily life. Because divinity always wants to teach us through visions when the mind is calm and receptive so that we can learn how to be better people, how to be more ethical, how to bind our communities, how to make people strong to help others no longer suffer. But of course, this requires training. It's a type of work which we're going to didactically explain through each lecture, different practices, so that we train the consciousness to be alert, aware, mindful. This in itself is genuine mysticism. The word mysticism comes from the Greek mysterion. It originates from the root word main, to close the eyes, and relates to mystikos, initiate. Or someone who initiates a different lifestyle. What religions have defined as the sacred mysteries of communicating with the divine, like Moses on Mount Sinai, Arjuna talking to Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita, Prophet Muhammad receiving the Quran from Angel Gabriel, and many other stories which all bear a type of unifying element, and that is the science of dreams. These are all dream symbols. These are visions in which, instead of having a mind that's clouded and obscured, driven by problems, by negative habits, mechanical desires, instincts, we instead have a crystal clear, sharp, open, receptive, intuitive mind that is not always churning with thought, but instead knows how to put thought in its place in order to understand. That's a very distinct and different quality that meditation teaches us. Not to be so caught up in rationalization because that is a type of obscurity. As I said, we could be thinking about something, perhaps a friend, a family member, a relative. 
or something else in which we're with someone having a conversation and yet we're thinking something else. That's a dream. That's not being awake, even while physically being in the body. But learning to become a mystic means to become a meditator. Silence the mind, let it relax, be calm, be clear, be sharp and alert, not distracted, so that we can receive insight, intuitions, understandings from that intelligence that religions have called God. Again, which is not some anthropomorphic figure in the clouds, but is presence, it is formlessness, it is being. That's how you learn to see the heavens, not just some physical place in the atmosphere or some temple one goes to on pilgrimage. Instead, that journey is within. That understanding and experience is personal. But to do that requires we learn to comprehend how we dream and understand the path that leads to the cessation of dreams but instead leads to the awakening of consciousness. Helena Petrovna Bolvatsky stated in a scripture she transcribed, known as the voice of the silence, before the soul can see, the harmony within must be attained and fleshly eyes be rendered blind to all illusion. So that consciousness can perceive the superior worlds we go to every night when we dream, we go to sleep at night, eight hours. We ask to project, enter that region, but without awareness. If we learn to overcome our own illusions, psychological habits and conditions that trap us, we can learn to see and know these realities for ourselves. That's a form of harmony, real harmony, real integrity perfection of the soul in which we end pride we end hatred we end fear we stop laziness we end lust all these passions of mind and defects that we often very much cling to when those cease and are perfectly still then you can know something superior and that's a form of harmony in which we integrate consciousness that's usually very much dispersed in many different habits, right? We could be at home. Obviously, many people working from home now. Hopefully, that's changed. In which we could be at the computer desk doing a project, but then think of something else. Thinking of a friend, a fiancé, a partner, a spouse, a relative. Or we feel hungry and the instinct of wanting to get up and get something to snack on. Or the emotional feeling, I want to listen to some other type of music right now because I want to relax. We have many elements in our psychology that are always going all over the place. Very distracted. And that in itself is the origin of many problems. Because we're not really addressing the necessities of life with a full consciousness, directed attention, awareness, focus, in which we finish a task, give it all of our depth and soul and being so that it can be something magnificent. 
and really create something superior instead of just multitasking because that's the mind and desires going in many places. We lack integrity. This is why consciousness, when it's trained, can be focused and sharpened so that when we practice that skill in the day, physically when you go to bed at night, your consciousness is already trained. It's exercised. It knows how to work. So that instead of falling asleep and then eight hours waking up in the morning without any remembrance, instead we enter that dream world with lucidity, with intentionality, with focus. So what is the dream world? This is something that's fascinated a lot of people. For as long as there has been recorded history and scriptures. We mentioned in the first lecture how the world of dreams is the same place as the world of the dead. This is why in Greek mythology, hypnos and thanatos, sleep and death are brothers. If you want to know how conscious you will be when you die, look at how you are when you go to sleep. Do we remember anything? Or do we just sleep eight hours and nothing? That's a barometer of how conscious we are. And while this can be a very disturbing realization, the truth and reality is that there is the potential to develop something truly profound. And that it's something that's learned. It's a gradual skill. I know some people like to think of astral projection as given to only the few who are graced by divinity. As it just was given to them at birth. And the reality is that that's not true. At some point in the development of that individual soul, that person had to work. It's acquired. It's a form of self-mastery in which, by training oneself, one can go into what's known as the fifth dimension. Some people call it the astral plane, the world of dreams, heavens, Janat in Arabic, amongst the Sufis and the Muslims. Whatever name we want to give to that reality, it's the fifth dimension. Now, in terms of dimensionality, we're all familiar with three dimensions. Length, height, width. The physical plane. But scientists have also talked about the fourth dimension, which is time. Einstein's very famous for talking about relativity, the space-time continuum. That's basically a form of development and temporality in which all experience at our level is processed. But the astral world is beyond time. The world of dreams, the world of the dead, is beyond time. That's why if you wake consciousness within that state, you can see things happen there that are going to come true physically later. The fifth dimension, beyond time, things you can witness that are from the past, the present, and the future. This is why in the book of Daniel, in the Bible, why prophets such as Daniel were able to interpret events that were going to come true later through his dreams. This is the essence of prophecy. But also one can see the past in a very visual form. It's like watching a movie in which you're witnessing events, but also 
participating in them. Some people have called this the Akashic Records, the memories of nature, in which every action is recorded, is imprinted within nature. And that's known as eternity. Eternity is also a circle, but eternity is also a loop because past, present, future meld into an eternal now. Something very beautiful, mystical. If you want an example of that, I remember a long time ago, I remember walking in the astral plane. I was in some city. And I was just looking at the billboards because I was curious. I was practicing my mindfulness and being in remembrance of myself and not losing my attention. Just observing the things going on there. And when I'm talking about that type of experience, I don't mean it's something vague or unclear or amorphous. There is more color, lucidity, crispness, depth, than even being physically awake. We have that potential. So I remember looking at a billboard and I saw an advertisement for a movie that had not come out yet. It was, I believe it was one of the Indiana Jones films, The Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, something like that. And I woke up and then, I don't know, six, seven years later, they announced they're making this film. So I just thought, I found that interesting. Whether or not that has some uh, utility is another thing, but it's interesting. I saw something that existed in the internal world before it became physical. And that's what inventions are like. People imagine or conceptualize or have an idea for something. It exists within the astral world before it becomes physical. Because that's just the way the universe and the mind work. Things kind of trickle down from more abstract realities into more manifest reality. So it's something timeless, but because it's beyond time, you can see things that are going to happen that have happened. In this dimension, you can fly, you can teleport, you can walk through walls, because that dimension is governed by very different laws. Elasticity, plasticity, levitation. This is why people report dreams of flying, or perhaps we had that experience ourselves. Levitating in the air, going places. But for most of us, we don't really see what's there objectively. We tend to just interact with our own mind. Because our mind, as I said, projects its dreams onto the screen of that dimension. And so we don't really, in our current state, see the objectivity of that plane. But if you turn the projector off, quiet the mind, enter meditation, concentration, awareness, you can enter that state with vigilance, with awareness. And then actually see what's going on. And that's the real joy and beauty and mystery of that type of science. So the question becomes, who dreams? As I said, or hinted at, we often like to think that because we go to bed eight hours and we don't see anything, we don't dream. But the truth is that we're dreaming all the time. We dream when we're washing the dishes. We're remembering or recalling something in the day or projecting an idea about the future, what we're going to do later, but not actually watching what we're doing. We could be driving our car, having a conversation, or listening to the radio, 
thinking about it, trying to analyze a podcast perhaps, but we're not paying attention to the road and we get into an accident. It's because we're dreaming. People get on the, the train, reading a book perhaps for a bit and then lost in reverie, thoughts, fantasies, daydreams, recollections. And then we realize we missed our stop. It's because we're dreaming. We're not awake. And of course, even on a very basic level, it's easy to understand that there are certain problems to this. Perhaps we're at a job, we have to pay attention to learn new skills. But if we're thinking of something else and get distracted, we, lo we lose something essential. And then we have to ask again for help. And perhaps that could be annoying to a, an employer. We're dreaming all the time. So what's important to remember is that the dreamer can awaken. It's a very famous trope. You find it even in movies like Dune or Frank Herbert's book. The sleeper must awaken. All religions teach the need to awaken consciousness. Awake, awake. Deborah, arise all Barak, says the Old Testament. And I believe in one of the, I believe it's the book of Judges. Story of uh, the prophetess Deborah. Many declarations saying you need to awaken consciousness. Because we have the illusion that we are awake. That we're present. That we're mindful. That we're aware. But oftentimes, if we're very serious and analyze our daily state, we find that we are usually very distracted. Our thoughts are one place, our feelings are, are in another, and our desire to act is conflicted. We're split. But by learning through training to focus on what we're doing at all times, to be aware, to be observing ourselves, our thought processes, our emotional reactions to life, our sentiments, and also our will to act, our impulses, we start to discover that we're something much more deeper than thought, feeling, and will. Something much more profound. Consciousness exists even before thought. I know in our Western culture we like to idolize thinking quite a bit. But in truth, it's actually a very slow machine. It's a processor of energy and matter and perception in its level. We need the intellect and know how to use it, but it's not really the defining factor of an individual. We can touch a hot stove, burn our hand, retract our hand in pain. We have the instinct, the impulse. We first get out of danger. Perhaps we feel frustrated and angry. We feel that visceral pain of having been burned. And then we think right afterward, that really hurt. Shows us that thought is actually a much slower process than many other aspects of our psychology. And the reason why I'm mentioning all this is because if we want to understand what awakening consciousness is within the dream state, it's important to understand how we process information and experiences in life in different ways. We'll go into a lot of depth in this specifically when we talk about how do we dream. But by understanding our own thinking, our feelings, and our impulses, 
We no longer let those habits and desires simply run amok. We understand them. Instead, we can respond to life with intelligence. Instead of just reacting to someone when someone criticizes us or we feel anger or fear or depression, whatever it may be. All of those are forms of dreams. Different thoughts, perhaps, but also many types of emotions that we often very much indulge in in life. We explained that there are different types of consciousness, different states. There is sushupti, which is profound sleep. That often is associated within Hinduism and yoga as physically going to bed, eight hours pass, and then we don't remember anything. But also, in a more practical level for us, there is profound sleep when we look at mobs, lynches, crowds propelled by violence, war. Because those people, even though they're physically active, doing things, they're not really conscious of their neighbor. They're driven by fear, instinct, self-preservation, the desire to kill. That's a profound state of sleep in a spiritual sense, in a conscious sense. Because if we're really conscious of other human beings, we feel love, compassion for them. Because we understand that we all have the natural inclination to avoid suffering and find happiness. Everyone has that ingrained within the substrate of their very being. So sushupti is profound sleep. Basically, people who are murderers, who kill, who commit violence in any form are very unconscious. It's important to dissociate from the Assumption that sleep is merely just related to the physical body. Because the physical body, in truth, could be doing things, but yet we're not aware. This is very well known within uh, yoga and Buddhism especially. But let's talk about svapna, dreaming sleep. What is dreaming sleep? As I said, we dream in the day often. We can argue with people wanting to assert our beliefs, political ideas, religion, culture, race, doctrine, all these things that our modern world often adulates and worships is in fact a form of dreaming. It's an illusion. These types of things are very temporal. They don't last. They're not eternal. The soul, the consciousness, is eternal. It doesn't have a beginning and an end in its ultimate sense. And yet, we adopt different beliefs and ideas and cultures and habits and ways of thinking whenever we uh, lose that connection with our true origins. We're often very much distanced from our true nature, but we can see glimpses of it day to day we find selfless acts of heroism, compassion, love, sacrifice, benevolence, patience, kindness, in which we're not really thinking for ourselves, 
or doing for others. But those types of experiences tend to be very minimal, if we're honest, very limited. What we have instead are a lot of dreams. I'm a Republican, I'm a Democrat, I'm a capitalist, I'm a socialist. I'm a philosopher, I'm a scientist. We have a lot of ideas about who we are. We often cling to things, our name, our culture, our habits, our beliefs, as something substantial, as something permanent. But the truth is that these things always change, right? There's always perhaps different circumstances happen in our life. Perhaps we were, to use a very silly example, maybe we were a Republican. Then something happened in the media, especially in this past year especially, and then we change our beliefs, change our ideas. But the truth is that even those ideas don't necessarily have a type of eternity. They're conditions. They don't really, really reflect the type of values that belong to what we call the divine. So knowing that distinction is very challenging. It's very difficult because of attachment, because of the type of hypnosis of identifying with our own conditions of mind, habits, etc. This is why we study Jagrat, which is waking consciousness. Notice we're not talking about the wakeful body, that the body is awake. This doesn't refer to just the physical body being active and doing things, because we can be, as I said, driving our car but not paying attention. It has to do with consciousness that's perceptive, that's alert that's understanding, that's seeing the impressions of life, but not necessarily just labeling experiences with the intellect or judging a person based on our emotions. Perhaps we feel aversion to someone based on their race or their caste, their culture, their language, their beliefs, their politics. We feel perhaps negative emotions about them, resentments, pride, whatever it may be. Or certain relationships. We feel conflicted. We don't know how to act around certain people. And we kind of get stuck within this type of clumsy deliberation. But the reality is that waking consciousness knows how to intuitively respond to any situation with lucidity, with compassion. Doesn't necessarily mean complacency like letting a person walk all over you. Consciousness can be firm but loving, kind, patient, doesn't identify with problems in life, doesn't suffer. The consciousness knows how to act. It's the intuition of knowing what to do at any time. You don't have to think about it. It's beyond thought. Perhaps we had a situation where, I know in one example, I remember I had a conflict with a person from years ago, and I was in a situation where years later I had to speak to them out of necessity. Couldn't avoid it. And I felt that conflict in myself, that, that fear, like, oh, I don't want to talk to this person, and the thoughts and the logic and the reasoning and the resentments that were stewing there. But then I was observing all that process in myself, and I understood that just by looking at that defect in me, that it was wrong. I intuitively knew this person seems to be suffering. Therefore, I'm going to act. And putting my 
prejudice and self behind, I went up to the person and had a conversation. And it turned out that she was actually very grateful to me for showing that olive branch and making that connection. That's one example of really being awake, where I just saw in myself my own defects, observing that. That's waking consciousness. And we have a practice in our tradition called self-observation, in which we learn to understand the origin of thought, feeling, and will, even before they emerge, because we're activating a sense and skill within us that often is very atrophied. It's in that way that we can access what's known as Turiya. This is spiritual illumination. This is what all the diverse religious traditions have called ecstasy, samadhi, spiritual states in which there's no distortion of mind there. In terms of dream yoga, you could be physically in bed, have an astral projection, and then there is no type of obscuration in your perception. You're seeing what's there. You're fully lucid, you're clear, you're in control. And you can investigate and navigate those regions with competency. It also has to do with the type of perception relating to a divine being, like a prophet. We call them masters. We call them Buddhas, angels, gods. They don't have pride, laziness, fear, calumny, gossip. They're perfect. No fault. We can access a state like that in a temporary sense, but obviously it's something that has to be gradually developed through discipline. But there are beings, prophets, angels, whatever you want to call them, who did it. And this is why we study their teachings very profoundly in the original sources. Not what institutions say they say, but what are they actually saying from experience. In that way, we have no doubt. We talk about in our studies about the line of life. It's very important to analyze where we've come from and where we're going. This is why many people study religion and spirituality in general, because they have a yearning to understand the origin of the soul, the origin of the world, the meaning of faith, the meaning of compassion. Where we came from and why do we suffer? Perhaps that's the most compelling reason why anyone goes to any church or school or religion or community. We study the line of our life very diligently because our own life is a book. It has many chapters. If we want to have self-knowledge about higher realities, it begins by knowing ourselves. Knowing where we came from, even physically, but also psychologically. Our habits, our ideas, our personality, our culture. I mean, these are things that come to us. Or better even said, we come to it. I think that's a much more accurate description. We're born in this world, and as children, we are very innocent. We look at any child, we see the beauty of the soul there that has not been tainted or contaminated by defect. 
But with time and through gradual exposure to parents, school, family, language, culture, customs, that initial brilliance of a child is dimmed. It gets swallowed by pride, anger, hatred, defects. We call that ego, self, egotism, desire. And most people tend to go through their life from that initial state, acquiring and acquiring more experiences, accumulating more and more, family, job, reputation, income, retirement, whatever it may be. And while there are necessary components to life that we need to work with, it's not the definition of a person. There's something more, and there has to be something more than just being born, going through adolescence with all of its turmoil and suffering, its pain, its uncertainty, its abuse, to becoming adults who are trying to piece together their life and then getting married, having children, and then dying. And then, what then? Why be so caught up in that? It doesn't mean that we reject all these things and live like hermits. That's a, another extreme to life that does not offer a very uh, long term solution. Instead, we begin where we're at. Because fortunately for our spiritual life, there's something more. There is a point that intersects with our daily existence. We call it the vertical path. So on the horizontal beam, we have the line of life. But here, Vertically, intersecting as a form of a cross, we have the line of being. This has to do with the quality of our life, the quality of our states. And of course, as you see here, there are inferior qualities of life in psychology and also superior states of mind. I've named some of them for you. In the inferior levels, we have ego, selfishness, more attachment, more aversion, more craving, more desire to accumulate more and more, many ideas, theories, beliefs, philosophies, doctrines. The mind that wants to just saturate itself and acquire more and more information because it thinks that by feeding that desire, we're going to be happy. Knowledge is useful in its place, but it is not fundamental for a person to be spiritual. Obviously, there's a balance there. Got to make that distinction. We often go from birth to death dreaming. We dream while we drive our car. We dream on the train. We dream while married. We dream while making love. We dream and have many desires and beliefs and habits that we invest our energy into. And because wherever we direct our attention, we expend energy we often find that in life we're very depleted, which is why as we approach our elder years, we're decrepit, we're sick, we're old, we're weakened. That energy which can fuel our spirituality often is very much wasted, invested in the wrong things, identify with the wrong things, so that when we die, oftentimes most people, they go to the grave they enter the dream world, but not aware that they're dead. 
Personally, I met my grandfather in the astroplane. He died a long time ago. I was in a room with my family, who are still alive, talking with him. And then I realized, why am I talking to my grandfather here? He's dead. And as I was talking to them, I realized they didn't know where they were. So it's a pretty alarming thing. And something that shouldn't necessarily just fill one with fear, but with urgency. It's a very different, nuanced principle. To have urgency to want to awaken consciousness is different from just being fearful. Oh, if I go to the grave, then what then? Fear is another condition of mind. It's an inferior state of being. Something that we can overcome by looking at it. By learning to understand ourselves in the moment, we can access superior states of consciousness and then we stop dreaming. We're no longer filled with fear, with agony, or problems. The superior line of being is developed in us or we ascend vertically in the moment. It has nothing to do with time. Spiritual development in a conventional sense, occurs gradually, obviously, because we're in physical bodies, we're in this physical world, we're subjected to the laws of nature, time especially, the fourth dimension. But the consciousness does not belong to time. It's eternal. But unfortunately, because we dream physically, we're not aware of it. We don't realize it from experience. Anybody who's had an astral projection obviously has tasted some glimpse of that and knows for themselves that it's real and that we're more than just our physical body. So this pushes us to want to know ourselves, know our defects, our faults, so that we cease dreaming. We're aware of the moment. Because every moment we advance towards death. We progress in this line of life towards a inescapable end. But this sh should not be a source of morbidity or shame, anxiety. Obviously these are emotions that are very common for people because we don't understand where we came from or where we're going. But if you awaken your consciousness, you'll know. You can know where you came from, where you are, and where you're going. What your trajectory is. We follow the trajectory of our actions through life. Consciously or unconsciously. So by making conscious decisions, we're learning to develop our perception so that physically when we die, we welcome it. Not out of some quirkiness being dark. Instead, it's born out of acceptance and understanding. For me personally, I know what will happen when I die. I've been able to awaken enough consciousness within the internal worlds to be shown what it's like after the body is dead. Therefore, why be afraid? I don't have to be afraid. It's a natural process. What one could be afraid of instead is not living one's life ethically, taking advantage of this precious time that we have, moment by moment, to make changes, small changes, gradual. 
In that way, we don't necessarily become victims of life. We don't react to problems. Instead, we can comprehend our situation and learn to respond with intelligence. We talked briefly about this image in our previous lecture, something we'll go back to periodically. It's known as the tree of life. It's a Jewish symbol, but also a universal one. In Jewish mysticism, they talk about Kabbalah. This is the tree of life within the book of Genesis. Rather than constituting a literal tree within Mesopotamia that existed, however, long ago in the physical Middle East, it's really a symbol. It's a map of consciousness. It depicts the inferior states of consciousness and the most superior, ascending towards a higher and more elevated spirituality. These are not spheres or levels of being that are mapped out in physical space. It's not like there's some kind of verticality to this. It's a symbol. It's an allegory. These spheres, known as sephiroth in Hebrew, are known as emanations. They are qualities of consciousness. They are also dimensions. This is a map of us as a psyche, but also of divinity, and also where we go when we sleep, when we dream. There are different levels of matter, energy, and consciousness. Right now, we're in the bottom sphere. This is known as Malkut in Hebrew, the physical world. It is our physical body. Above that, we have our vitality, our creative energy. This is known as the fourth dimension. So third dimension below, fourth dimension above. This is time. It's known as Yesod, the foundation, because how we work with our energy is the foundation of spiritual life. As I said, wherever we direct attention and energy, we spend it. So if we spend it within our consciousness, we can conserve that force and learn to awaken our potential. What people call the astral plane is known as hod, meaning splendor in Hebrew. It's this sphere, bottom of the left pillar, as you see here. We call that the astral plane. This is typically where people go when they have superior astral projections. And to the right of that, we have netzach, which means victory. This is known as the mental world. So there's a mental plane and an emotional plane, mind and heart. These two spheres constitute what's known as the fifth dimension. This is eternity. Yasad is the fourth dimension. Malkut is the third dimension. But we have inferior dimensions as well, what religious have called hell. Hell realms. Those states are experienced through nightmares. That's hell in a direct way. It's a type of experience that is real, but not in physical matter, energy, and perception, but it's in a more subtle form of experience, which is why we often interact in those states within dreams, but not realize that it's not physical because the internal worlds reflect the physical and vice versa. Above, we have more superior states, which I won't go into the depth here. We have a future lecture that will talk all about this called Where Do We Dream? 
but I want to just summarize this for you because it's a very beautiful graphic, very practical tool because we can use it to understand our experiences. But also when we travel within those dimensions, we can know how to navigate it because this is the map, so to speak. It's important to know and learn this glyph with time because just as one would not travel to another country without knowing its, perhaps its language, its geography, its culture, its goods and bad. In the same way, it's reasonable for dream yogis, practitioners of this science, to understand the structure of that inner reality so that when you experience it, you know how to navigate. It's a very gradual process that we'll talk about in detail. So we'll conclude with an exercise that you can use in order to develop what's known as concentration. As I said, by learning to develop concentration, awareness, mindfulness throughout the day, the ability to focus on one thing without being distracted, we no longer dream. We teach the consciousness to not dream. We teach it to be awake. In that way, that skill will transition from physical life to dreaming life. So every day, develop self-observation from moment to moment. At the end of each day, reflect on how you did. So this has to do with learning to observe our psychology. It's like being a director in a movie in which you're the actor, but also you're also viewing the scene. Consciousness has the capacity to observe, to intuit, to understand. And this skill has to do with whenever a thought emerges, look at it, observe it. You may know that you're seated in this chair listening to me, but are you observing the fact? It's a different skill. And then, as we're learning to self-observe throughout the day, obviously it's going to be very challenging because, as you might realize even from before coming here, that learning to be mindful and aware throughout the day can be difficult because there are just so many distractions, whether externally or even our own emotional reactions, our thoughts, etc. But at the end of each day, just take five minutes, reflect. How mindful were you? How observant? How aware? And then every day, perform this preliminary meditation exercise. Carefully relax your body, heart, and mind. Observe an object, such as an image or a lit candle flame, without preoccupying yourself in thought, memories, or distractions. If you forget yourself, return to the object of the practice. Practice 10 to 15 minute sessions at least two or three times a day. So we're going to practice this together if you like. You can stay after. We have a candle here. You just take the candle, observe it. If your mind starts thinking of something else or labeling ideas or talking about it, just become aware of it. Don't try to repress, push it away, or try to get lost in it. Instead, just return to the candle. It's a beautiful exercise in which we learn to understand the distinction between knowing what's going on, but also observing it. Because as I said, you can know something is going on by sitting in a chair. You can know that you're in the chair. But observing it is active. Knowing is passive. Different quality. At this time, I'd like to invite you to 
Ask questions. Sure. So I'm a little confused about the self-observation uh, practice. So you're saying if I'm thinking about something, then I can't be self-observing, or is it possible to be both thinking and self-observing? Because in my job, I'm thinking a lot. It's an intellectual job. And how am I supposed to be self-observing throughout the day when I need to also think in my job? It's a good question. The latter is the answer. You could be thinking and doing intellectual things, but observe that. Some people think of self-observation as like, I had to stop thinking. In the higher degrees of understanding, we don't need to think. But we begin with where we're at. If we have a job that's very intellectual, or thinking, or teaching perhaps, reading a book, reading something about our job that we have to do, Read, but observe that. It's difficult, but it's a skill that's acquired. It comes with patience, patient work. Any questions? Sure. By attending any lectures or sessions, how common it is to have our own body movements? like legs, like this, you know, do some aging or, you know, whatever. It, suddenly you start observing yourself that you're not still. And I've seen people who are yogis and they still sit. So how common it is, or it, it is normal, or it is an indication of that something is not, like, not right. When a, there are some actions of our body which, while attending or sitting for a long time, it it, it gets it, it comes out. So it is like conscious, or I feel that you know, I'm suddenly out of sudden I get that feeling that you know something is not right. But is it normal or does it show that lack of attention or concentration? How to realize that that I'm not into the movement or I'm. Great question. For most people who are not training in mindfulness, it's not a problem because they're not really interested in learning about being conscious of themselves. But as we're learning to self-observe or do a meditation practice, it's important that we learn to understand even our involuntary movements, like perhaps scratching, a, twisting our fingers or moving a leg or whatever it may be, tapping a foot. You know, these are very common things, but we have to become aware of that. If you find that you're doing that, observe yourself and then reflect, where's that impulse coming from? It's not necessarily an intellectual question, but it's a perceptive one. You're just analyzing and being mindful why you're doing that. And I think oftentimes, at least for me, when I've observed that in myself, I've come to understand that there's some type of psychological defect in me that is perhaps impatient or or bored, or whatever it may be, agitated, something psychological is going on in a deeper sense that I'm not aware of. So doesn't mean that you don't necessarily have to just force your body to be still, but it's better if you just observe it and understand it. Because if you understand it, then your, your psychology is quiet, right? All physical action are a material manifestation of our internal reality. So. Things that happen physically come because psychologically there's something there. 
And one thing I wanted to mention too that in the, one of the earlier slides about the fifth dimension, I mentioned that things happen internally and then manifest physically. The same thing with our psychology. So this proves to us that we are in truth very multidimensional. Our thoughts are one thing, our emotions are another dimension to ourselves, and our instincts are another. The more understanding you have of your own psychological impulses, then you comprehend why you're tapping and you'll stop. It doesn't have to become something like, oh, I, I can't tap my foot, right? That's, a, that's kind of the mind fighting the mind. And that's not what we're advocating. Instead, it's something about observing yourself, understanding where it comes from. And when you understand that impulse, it quiets, ceases. And I believe even Gurdjieff mentioned quite a bit about the need to no longer be doing movements of our body involuntarily, carelessly, because it means that we're very unconscious. In fact, one of the best ways to begin self-observation is learning about your posture. Learn about your breathing. Learn about your habits. It's a very simple way to begin. You may notice that perhaps you crack your fingers or whatever it may be. Begin with that. And as you get more competent in understanding those impulses, then the more relaxed you become. And that's really important for meditation, having a relaxed mind, heart, and body. When you have that, meditation is open to you when you're concentrated, when you're aware. You're welcome. Is there a, is there a difference between awakening in a dream versus uh, allowing the body to fall asleep and maintaining consciousness? Yeah. It has to do with when you enter the astral world. You might fall asleep physically and unconsciously project, and then you wake up in a dream later. That happens all the time. can happen. And then other times, obviously, the goal is to learn to fall asleep consciously so that you enter that state with awareness. So it has to do with how attentive you are. Oftentimes, you can wake up in a dream later because even though you were not conscious that in the beginning, suddenly you start to expand your perception where you're seeing your surroundings in the astral plane. Maybe you're walking down a street of your old neighborhood, wherever you grew up, and then you realize, oh, what am I doing here? For me, it's, I tend to have dreams where I will be at my old house where I grew up as a kid. And I'll recognize my surroundings and question, what am I doing here? How did I get here? I remember where I came from. I'm living in the city now, not out in the wherever, suburbs. So then you can learn to question that and develop that inquiry. And that's something you can only develop by, again, learning mindfulness throughout the day. You're self-observing. You're becoming aware of your different thought processes, feelings, impulses. And when you train your consciousness to do that in the day, when you physically go to sleep, even if you're not aware of an astral projection, you can suddenly start to see things in your dreams where you're getting more lucidity. The consciousness is being trained, is being strengthened. So learning to concentrate and develop those skills helps to see more clearly, awaken more perception. So you can wake up later in the night too. So different from an, a conscious astral projection. So we're going to talk about like how to, how to awaken in dreams later on, specifically. So earlier you were talking about how mob mentality is a sign of that 
sleep with the consciousness because they don't feel compassion for other people. But can some people be awakened in evil? Because some murderers are very conscious of what they're doing, you know, like serial killers. Um, it's not like they're going, like, they're kind of asleep. I see what you're saying, like they're identified with, like, anger or violence or, or something like that. Can you explain that distinction? Sure. It has to do with the individual. As we mentioned before, we can... Uh, be aware that we're killing someone. Now, a lot of people talk about mindfulness and awareness as like, sometimes the end-all be-all of spirituality. But it's just the beginning. Being aware of yourself so that you can be understanding of where you're at is the initial step of learning to be conscious and an ethical person. The next step is learning to transform situations with compassion. Learning to transform the impression of a situation with awareness, with understanding, better said. But there's also another flip side of that coin. I mentioned to you and showed you that image of superior states of being and inferior states. We can awaken positively within our consciousness, or we can awaken within desire, within hatred, within anger, within pride, because awakening is dual doesn't always end up positively. Now, awakening negatively has to do with giving one's energy to one's desires. So one can be very awake, but through hatred or pride or vanity. And therefore, they develop a lot of power in that element. And they tend to be very dangerous individuals because they're very influential, can even be charismatic, influential people. The difference between the type of unconsciousness I was referring to is for most people. People who have never really trained in any type of spirituality. They tend to just go with the flow of life. If there's a crowd, they get attracted to it, they go to it. It's kind of a collective hive mind, so to speak. But there are people who learn to train themselves to awaken within their own defects. And that's something we don't teach. It's a negative thing. The first step is to be awake and be conscious of what I'm doing. But then you're saying later on, I have to learn to discern between, am I doing this uh, driven by pride or anger or like a lot of revenge on someone? And how do I know if it's not that and I'm awakening in a good way? Follow your heart. Look at your heart. Your conscience is the best guide. Unfortunately, there are people in our society, in our world, who don't even have conscience anymore. And therefore, those people tend to be very lost causes. But if you look in your heart and examine in a moment an action you performed where you felt pain, your heart will tell you what's right, what's wrong. And most normal people, not psychopaths, so to speak. For example, you get into an argument with someone. You're telling yourself, I want to be patient with this family member. And then you start to observe in yourself. They, they start pushing your buttons because family members know how to do that. Resentment, pride, fear, anger, whatever comes up. You're aware of that. Now, just because you're aware of it doesn't mean that you're going to act ethically. Transforming the situation. Transforming your consciousness. And the way that you do it is, is by following the different precepts of different traditions. Religion, like kindness and selflessness. If someone insults you, 
Understand the insult. Understand where it's coming from and why. And understand that we're not perfect. So why be offended? It's really nothing stable there. And then follow your heart about how you should act. Because your heart knows. That's conscience. That's intuition. Knowing without having to think about it. But of course, the difficulty becomes is that our mind wants to devour us. Anger with its logic says, they offended me. I'm going to get, them back. I'm going to get back at them. So when you observe, observe that process in you, that's great. You're starting to see and understand how you're dreaming. The anger is dreaming. It's projecting its desires. It thinks that it's being offended and insulted. And it's seeing the situation through a lens. Isn't it true that, you know, when we're angry, you only see through anger. You don't see through any other way. Every situation becomes interpreted through a false door. That's one way that we sleep. So observe that. The beginning of change is stop dreaming. But just because you learn to stop dreaming in the beginning doesn't mean that we're going to be successful because you just have to really work at it. See what's happening, be aware of it, and then act appropriately. That's the next step. Any other questions? Yeah, sure. So we're about to, I know, uh, practice the method with like, looking at the candle, for instance. Um, sure. And I know there's other techniques that you can use to awaken in dreams. Uh, but would the best method be to just awaken consciousness now, here and now? Yeah, so there's a lot of things that complement, right? There's a lot of facets. We'll talk about in a lot of detail. I'll explain this to you now, but in the future, we're going to go really in depth about like, different ways to do it. And working with all of them together is like building a puzzle. Now, as you said, the primary method is be aware of yourself in the day. This is why at the very beginning of this course, we're just talking about what are dreams? Who dreams? How do we dream? Be aware of it. Because that's the foundation. When you're aware of how you get distracted in the day and learn to curtail that, not with a type of militant depotism, but with recollection, just remembering yourself. That's how you start to really use the tools in this course. It's like, for example, if you learn to uh, work with a machine, you have to be aware of yourself first to work it. Children obviously can't operate difficult machinery. That's why you get trained physically. Let them grow up first. In the same way, we learn to grow up spiritually as a child by learning to awaken our consciousness. And then we start using these different tools and techniques to kind of augment that. So one of the techniques we use is what we call the key of soul. We have a whole lecture that's all going to be about that, where it's an acronym. Subject, object, location. Subject, who am I? What are my thoughts? What are my feelings? What are my actions? Object, what's in front of me? Questioning, what am I seeing? Not necessarily with the intellect, but just being inquisitive. The way that a child is inquisitive when they're growing up and looking at a toy or creating something from the imagination. It's a very innocent quality. Doesn't assume that there's anything there or merely just projects memories onto reality. 
but looks at it. You know, we can be in our house oftentimes, our home, and we don't really observe where we're at because we just have things in our memory, right? It's easy to get into an accident even in your own home. A lot of people get hurt in their homes because they're not paying attention because they think they know what's going on or what's around them. Instead, we're not observing it. So object has to do with what's in front of us. Subject, ourselves. Object, what's in front of us. Location, where are we? Inquire, where am I? What am I doing? It might seem silly for, uh, you know, obviously being physically here in this world, but if you learn to train your consciousness in that way, you will eventually start to see things in your dreams where, because you're, you're observing your thoughts, your feelings, and your actions, you start to see objects in front of you and then a location in dreams. Maybe you're not in Chicago in the dream. That's a big alert. You question yourself, I live in Chicago, how did I get here? And then you start to realize, I think I'm dreaming. How did I end up in Spain? And that happened to me. I was, found myself in Spain in the astral plane. I'm like, people are talking Spanish. I'm like, why are they talking Spanish? What's going on? Where am I? Realize I was dreaming. And then if you want to test yourself, pull your finger in the astral plane because the matter of your astral body is ductile, is elastic. Pull it with the intention of making it stretch. And if you're intentional enough and gentle enough, obviously physically, you don't want to do this too hard, don't want to hurt yourself, in the dream it'll stretch. And then you realize, okay, I couldn't do that physically. I'm dreaming. I'm in the astral world. That's something you can do physically where you're just training yourself and then you just get in the habit of questioning, where am I? Okay, physically, discreetly, no one's watching you, thinking you're perhaps weird or unusual, just pull your finger. In dreams, you can also jump in the air and see if you're going to levitate, right? See if you fly. You can do it physically too, but I tend to, I like to be more discreet because I'm not going to be jumping around and my coworkers looking around at me like something strange is going on. Instead, pull your finger. And that way, that's one method, a really good one, very effective. Or try something else. You can um, put your hand through a window, see if you're going to pass it through. Done that many times. Works too. So the only reason that works is because we learn to question our dreams. Be self-observant moment by moment. You question our daily life when we're not sleeping. That's what helps us to wake up when we are sleeping. Exactly. It's the questioning. It's the inquiry. Is this an intellectual kind of, I'm labeling like, okay, location, yoga studio, me, my name, or how, how, is, how, can I, how can I make this conscious and not just intellectual? Practice. Just do it. Just do it. And then you find with time it's not an intellectual thing. In the beginning you're going to be like, okay, you can question yourself. It's easier that way, right? It's more of our habit. And that's the beauty of the practice is that it teaches us how to start from being mechanical to how to be conscious. So you're learning to take something that's very mechanical, like just walking in the street, or even, or even pulling your finger or jumping in the air, right? It's a common thing you can do. But with time and practice, you learn to start doing it with awareness. So, yeah, just takes acclimation, getting used to it. To the point that, I mean, you, you may even have times where you have trained yourself so well 
that suddenly you become vivid in a dream and you, you know I'm dreaming. And then jump in the air, fly away, go uh, investigate something. Any other questions? Sure. Oh, definitely. Great question. I like that. Uh, both. You could be lucid in a dream where you still don't realize you're dreaming. You know, for a lot of people, there's a big step, a hurdle there, where suddenly you may have the experience where you see a lot of different colors and images and landscapes, perhaps, but you don't really question that you're dreaming. The first step is awareness. The second step is discernment. That's a very delicate skill. That comes about as we learn to be more aware physically, but also learning to discern our own psychological states. The same skill that you use to comprehend how, whether or not you're seeing things clearly, not through maybe a, the lens of fear or anxiety or anger, whatever it may be. Instead, we're learning to see life without egotism. When you discern your own psychological states, it gets easier to discern your surroundings so that when you're lucid dreaming, when you're seeing things more clearly, you can start to question things and then make the leap where, okay, I think I'm dreaming here. Where you even make that first declaration to yourself. That's a big step. You know, just recognizing and even questioning, am I here? That's the starting point. Sometimes it's possible to have visions where you're receiving a divine symbol from your inner divinity through a mystical experience. And it could be happening and you're kind of just taking it all in, but you're not necessarily fully aware that you're dreaming or that you're in that experience. And then you wake up and then suddenly realize, whoa, I think uh, I just got an experience from my inner, my inner God. So there's that reality too. But with enough training, you start to learn to be in that state and then suddenly make the discerned judgment of what's actually going on. And then you can say, oh, with confidence, yeah, I'm dreaming. So you can discernment. Of your own mind. Like if I'm having a dream at night, it's a projection of my fear, I can wake up in that. Yeah. Or I can only wake up in the objective, like fifth dimension. You can both. Well, in the sense, uh, you can be having a very lucid dream in which your ego is projecting things. You're just seeing your own desires. And even in the middle of that, even if it's very intense and vivid, you can start to realize, wait, this is kind of crazy. Like, why am I seeing this action film playing out in front of me and all this weird logic going on? And you can discern there's something going on here. And you realize, I think I'm dreaming. It's possible. But usually with those very intense egotistical dreams, we tend to just go along with it because we're very sleepy. But... Visions, which are more objective, relating to our own inner divinity, occur within the superior fifth dimension, we could say. We call it the heavenly realms, heavenly world. And it just takes practice and a lot of meditation. You have those experiences, maybe you don't understand them at first. You know, with patience, you learn to discern between them.
To learn more about the knowledge covered in this lecture, we invite you to study the books available through Glorian Publishing or GnosticTeachings.org. You can also view free online courses, lectures, transcriptions, and articles available at ChicagoGnosis.org. All of this is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Have you benefited from this knowledge? Help others by making a tax-deductible donation at ChicagoGnosis.org. We thank you for listening. We hope that these lectures aid you in developing your complete and divine potential. May all beings be happy. May all beings be joyful. May all beings be in peace. Thank you.